Welcome to another episode of the Traveling Entertainer Podcast, and boy, do we have a doozy conversation coming your way. Today's guest is none other than Canadian born and bred. He's a musician, he's a performer, and he just happens to be an internationally performing opera singer, Robert Pomakoff. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm an idiot, then you might not know a tremendous amount about the world of opera, so I was really excited to have this opportunity to explore a part of the music world I knew little about. Interestingly enough, adding an opera singer to the traveling entertainer wasn't really on the radar. It just so happens that I literally ran into Bob in Paris and we just started chatting. However, in that brief conversation, I quickly realized just how much world traveling, work, and dedication is involved with a career in opera. I jokingly call this next episode An Idiot Goes to the Opera because it's a two-part episode where I not only interview Mr. Pomakov about his life in opera, but we circle back for another conversation after I've seen his performance in Madame Butterfly at the Paris Opera, which is my first live opera performance. Now let me just read you a quick bit of Bob's bio sheet. Mr. Pomakov has been a prize winner in several of the world's premier singing competitions, a finalist in the Queen Elizabeth competition in Belgium, second place at the Belvedere Competition in Vienna, and third place in Plaza Domingo's Operalia. Mr. Pomakov was decorated with the Simeon, the first honorary medal from the Ministry of Culture of the Republic of Bulgaria, and with the diploma from the Minister of Culture for his achievements in opera's art and special merit to Bulgaria's culture and its dissemination all over the world an Encouragement Award in the George London Foundation Competition, an award from the Maryland Home Foundation Competition, the Victoria Scholars Grant second prize in the Canadian Music Competition, and first prize in the Kiwanis Music Festival in Toronto. Mr. Pomakov is a graduate of the Curtis Institute of Music, and he has been in countless opera productions all over the world. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is that conversation with Robert Pomakov. Welcome to the Traveling uh, Entertainer Podcast. It's so nice to have you on here. My guest today is Robert Pomakov. Is that how you pronounce it? That's it. I did pretty well. Not bad. Not bad for the first time. <laughs> Robert and I, it's kind of an odd story, but we actually met on the streets of Paris uh, at a, basically at Stoli's. Yeah. Uh, and Expat bar. Uh, when I ran into him, it was a really interesting conversation because at some particular point, I believe I asked you what you did, and your response was? I'm a musician. You're a musician. And... Uh, not only just a musician, but an opera singer. Exactly. Uh, now, let me ask you this. The first thing that I, that I want to get into is what when you tell people what you are, is it a musician, is it an opera singer, or where do you usually go with that? I always say a musician because that's what I consider myself. And then I kind of see where the conversation goes. Because I, I think if you say opera singer to someone, it's kind of like it's, it's a bit jolting, and, and also um, the other person might not know what to say whereas at least with music there's always like oh cool like what kind of music or what do you play or where do you play and, and you can st start a little conversation it might only be 45 seconds to a minute before you get to opera singer but at least you've established that kind of trust especially meeting someone for the first time so I kind of find it's a good icebreaker so that's why I, I always say musician always start with musician yeah. okay because I, I if I recall our conversation went you actually went straight for opera, and I went, like, opera, opera? Yeah. Like, where? Yeah. And, you know, it was really, to me, it was really fascinating. When I got very quickly to where are you performing at and how many people are you in front of, I, I was literally like, I don't know anyone who does this. It's such a unique 
Oh, it's career. Th- totally. It's it's amazing. And yeah. and actually this is let's before we get into the the nuts and bolts of what you do and and what you've accomplished and where you're going and where where you're where you've been, I always like to start off with getting uh, the guests to talk about where they're from. Okay. So can you give me a little bit of background on where you grew up? I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I was there till I finished high school and then I went to a very tiny music conservatory in Philadelphia called the Curtis Institute of Music. So I lived in Philly for four years, and then I moved back to Toronto after that. But, I mean, as I say, Toronto's kind of my domicile now. It's where my mail goes. Um, I'm I'm usually on the road at least 10 months a year. Um, The one, uh, three or four years ago, because I have to calculate my dates for tax purposes, I spent 30 days in Toronto, and that's not like 30 days. That's like two days here, five days here. So I mean, it can it can be quite a grueling schedule travel wise. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, sense. absolutely. Well, um, let's go back a little bit even further. Uh, you have your 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 voice is considered a bass. That's what right. it is. Uh, and when did you discover that you had this power? Um, so there's a there's one of the few remaining Catholic choir schools still in Toronto that's connected to the cathedral downtown. I think there's only four or five of them in the world. So I was a student there. I started there in grade six, and um, so every it's a small school uh, from grade th- three through the end of high school. I think there's about, depending on the year, around 300 kids, all boys, and every kid has to sing in, in a choir that sings regularly at church on Sundays or Saturday nights sometimes, and also there'll be um, two concert tours a year. Um, when I was in school there, we went as far as the Yukon, Yukon and Alaska territories, as far south as Trinidad and Tobago the schools went to Germany France so it goes all over the place so there's a kind of a concert performing aspect to it and there's also just uh the church service aspect so we we do choral music every day you have choral rehearsals every day everyone has to study piano so it's a very intense musical education and it was one of those things where I was in grade seven and my voice starts break but I was the first kid I was very young so I was the first kid in my class so as kids, you don't know what's happening, right? Like you're just. My son is currently going through. That. Yeah, yeah, so there you go. You know, we're, we're hearing it right now. It's right. changing. Yeah, that thing happens. And it was just—it was one of those funny things. Like I was—I was fine as a as a boy alto. Like I could hold, I could hold a tune, but I was like, it was nothing special. I wasn't one of the kids that they're all always giving solos to. And musically, I was innately fine, but I wasn't like proficient at piano or other instruments. And then I remember when the voice finally changed, and I went in front of my. Uh, conductor at the time and he just kind of tested on my voice and he was like kind of flabbergasted at the noise I could make and the sound I could produce and like he called a few of his colleagues and was like you kind of got to listen to this and I just remember at that time it was like the first time in my life where I I felt like I had a room like I I I had a a control over people and um, you know I always say if you pick up a baseball and you can throw it 90 miles per hour you should probably start playing baseball you know like if you just have a talent you should probably explore it. So for me, it was just always very obvious. Like once I discovered the voice and I had a passion for it and, and it kept developing and I, and for once in my life, I found something that I really wanted to put the work into because it requires so much discipline to be right. a musician and especially a classical musician that it just, it always seemed right, right to me. That's a fantastic point too, to, to find your talent at a young age and to be able to put as much effort into it, knowing that that's going to be the end result. Yeah. That isn't something that happens to very many people. No, definitely I, not. I mean, I think there's still a lot of people, even at our age group that still don't know what they're doing. Oh, totally. <laughs> so totally. to have that yeah. at a young, at a young age is, is pretty spectacular. Yeah. 
Um, and then moving on from that, you're 13 years old. You have this fantastic voice. How long does it take you after, I mean, 13, I'm guessing, what's that? That is sixth, seventh grade, seventh grade? Seventh or eighth, yeah. So yeah, seventh or eighth grade. At that point, did you know? I'm going to graduate from high school and move on to this. You said it was the Cur- Curtis, Curtis Institute. Curtis yeah. Institute. Yeah. Was that definitely, that's where I'm going the entire time, or did you explore other options for education? So basically how it would have worked is you discover you have a good voice, and then you start taking like pri- private voice lessons, and you start, because like you have to remember at school you're pretty much just doing like uh, litur- liturgical music. So you start exploring classical vo- vocal music, opera music, you're working with a teacher, you're working with coaches on repertoire, and there's kind of like different steps you do. Like I did uh, some summer programs where you, you would learn how to perform opera, how to put on like a very amateur production, but do that. And then that would kind of move to like larger schools of music in the United States that had summer programs that were basically for kids who were either doing their undergrad or graduate work who just wanted to keep studying during the summer. So I was like an outlier there because I was like 16 or 17 years old doing these programs. And once you get into that kind of system, you start meeting the people who are at the big schools. Like everyone knows the uh, the Juilliard School in New York, yep. and everyone thinks of that as a great place. But actually, in some senses, Curtis is a I hate to use the word b- better, but a, a more prestigious uh, institution because Curtis is so small that they only have one orchestra. So what that means is. Every four years, they need one tuba player. Uh, you know, th- they only need 24 violinists to fill that orchestra. And all these kids are trained to become professional musicians, not to become... A lot of schools... I mean, you can, you can go to any school and become a pre- professional musician. But most schools are giving you a very broad education. They're giving you music history. They're giving you music theory. They're teaching you on a more institutional way. Whereas Curtis was all based on the relationship between you and your private instructor and developing you into the best musician so you can go in the world and actually perform. Like, it really is a performance academy. Right. So I think once I heard about that, I knew I wanted to perform, and I knew I wanted to perform as quickly as I could. I knew, like, I knew I wanted to climb the steps as fast as I could. I mean, that I always, always liked that as a kid, like climbing two steps instead of step by step. And you suffer because of that, but you, I just kind of had that energy. And I think that once I knew about Curtis, that's where a lot of my focus was. Now, the other thing I do remember is that's the only place I had auditioned for. And then the rest of it was just sending in applications to do like an arts degree or um, like a pre-law degree. And I kind of got into those. And I think for a moment I was uh, in my last year of high school, I was kind of like, you know, maybe I should go get a real education first. And then I can always fall back to m- music. And I, my dad was always, my parents were always such great supporters. And I think my dad really wanted me to be a musician. And he was just kind of like, you idiot, you just got into the best school in the world. Like, go. Like, right. Like, don't give up that opportunity. Yeah, so. no, no, that's, that's really, really impressive. Yeah. Out of this institute that you came from, you, you mentioned that, I mean, I get your point of they only need one tuba player for four years, and I'm guessing it's a small graduating class every single year. Uh, is this something, are these people that you still are, you run into? Is anybody, have you worked in the same industry, or have any of them continued on, and you've worked in a production that someone from yeah, I college mean, has, has attended, or that knows, oh, you know, is that something that, it's like a handshake, oh, you're from there? That, I mean... Definitely. Like, in the end of the day, you always have to audition for these parts, especially for orchestral parts. But, like, right now, uh, one of my good friends that I went to Curtis with, um, 
two seasons ago, he was appointed the concertmaster of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, which is like literally the most prestigious um, orchestra job you could probably have in the world. And right. I mean, that orchestra is right now probably full of, probably has like 15 to 20 graduates of Curtis in an orchestra of 120. Like that, that's pretty impressive right. numbers. Um, and you see that, I really, I see that the most with orchestral jobs because most of the kids that go to Curtis as instrumentalists, the worst thing they become is a musician in a great symphony orchestra. I mean, they, I, most of them tend to go with um, hopes and dreams of being uh, soloists, but they're like that's one of the most impossible professions to get, and there's so few opportunities for those type of people. So that you see the orchestra musicians a lot. The piano and vocal worlds don't actually cross over that much, so you wouldn't see that. And then with the voice students, it's really a mixed bag. Like some, I would say from the four years I was there, there's probably out of like the 30 or 40, 40 singers that went there, there's probably, I would say, six to 10 that are, that are, you know, making a living off of this career. And those ones tend to be in great places as well. But, you know, vocal pedagogy, especially at that young age, like 18 to 30, is still considered relatively young for an opera singer. So it's like finding kids with talent and then developing that talent. And there's so many layers to performing, whether it's music, whether it's, uh, acting, whether it's just the ability to be on stage. I mean, th- and a lot of these things you can't teach. Like they just have to be learned, learned by performance by right. doing it over and over again. And so, let me ask you this: First of all, how old are you? I'm 38. You're 38. So, how long did it take you from the time that you graduated uh, to the? I'm guessing you're performing the entire time. I'm guessing you've always had a manager. You've always been yeah. in in some form of production, one way or the other. Yeah. But when did you feel like you were competent enough? Uh, or they thought you were to start being the lead in in the opera. So, what was your big breakout role in your mind that you you realized, oh, I'm getting moved up to the major leagues, if you will? That's very difficult to answer because part of it, one of the things with opera is where your voice lies. So my voice lies obviously very low, and also, so opera composers tend to write roles for my voice type as older characters like I always say I go around being uh, a god a devil or a king like those are kind of the roles I play (laughs) well it's kind of hard to put a 23 or 24 year old on stage to do a role like that just because they don't have the natural gravitas to do that the side the other side to that though is there's always a lot of use in kind of supporting and secondary roles in opera so I mean I've been working pretty much nonstop for the last 20 years because there was always supporting and secondary roles I could do. Moving into the bigger stuff, it like, it ebbs and flows. Like someplace you're somewhere and you, you do a big role and then you go back to doing this kind of secondary stuff. And I would say it was probably in the last five years where it's kind of a steady increase towards the bigger stuff. You know, I have to say like being a base is like you have to climb Everest from, uh, base camp and it's a really slow step-by-step process whereas being other voices is more like doing k2 where you have a crazy ascent and you just got to go and do it and get the hell off and it's very much like a kind of v curve to a career whereas mine's like a very very slow 40 degree angle up to the top and then hopefully stay there for a while one of the questions that i had is i'm guessing the cast is quite international yes is that accurate um first of all are you bilingual do you speak multiple languages or are you just in anglophone no, I, I've studied and can work in b- about five or six languages. And is all of that 
due to the fact that you are an opera performer, or is it just sort of a passion that you had? Does it come with the territory that they expect you to be bilingual? They don't expect expect you to be bilingual. They expect you to, this is the weird thing, they expect you to perform in multiple languages and to be flawless in those languages. Right. So in Europe, obviously, the singers tend to speak multiple languages just because that's European life. I mean, yep. people are from all over. The distances are small. Uh, usually in the education system here, you're usually by the time you finish high school, you've probably studied th- th- at least three languages. So the European singers tend to be extremely multilingual. Whereas the North American singers, I think there's less of the the, sp- the speaking of languages, but because of that, because their languages tend to be behind when they uh, go into university, the universities really uh, concentrate on what's called diction and lyric diction. So the idea is that you take classes that is not teaching you the structure of a language, but it's teaching you how to read a language, how to pronounce it perfectly, like perfectly phonetically and stuff like that. So American singers actually tend to have impeccable diction because it's been so kind of drilled into their heads. I mean, for me, I was born and raised in Canada, so I at least, I mean, I'm an Anglophone, so I obviously have English, but we have to study French Mm -hmm. up until grade 10. So you kind of at least have tapped your waters in uh, studying a foreign language. And then just once I got to Curtis, I just knew and I was and I just had an interest in languages I mean my father spoke many many languages he was from Bulgaria originally so and he always kind of pushed me like you know if you can at least communicate to people in their own language they have a a much higher respect and uh for you and so it was just something that I especially my early years of education really spent time concentrating on and let's talk about your parents and, and the support that they gave you throughout your, your process. So first of all, if I'm right, you mentioned that your father has passed away, correct? Correct. Let me ask you this. At what stage in your career did you lose your father? Uh, I was actually making a very important, not a big role, but an important secondary role debut at the Lyric Opera Chicago, which is, I would say, probably considered the second biggest house in America after the Met. So that would have been in 06. And just, and just had finished opening the new opera house in Toronto with Wagner's Ring Cycle, which is like the pinnacle of of opera. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings for opera. Right. And so that would have been the last thing he saw. And I immediately had to go to Chicago and he passed away like just, I think like five or six days before opening. So I kind of had to shuttle back and forth yeah, to deal with all logistics. All. It's not easy, but I mean, our family's very strong. And I, my mother and my brother and sister, like we got through it. Plus my, my dad had been sick for 10 years. Oh, so it, we had kind of been through this emotional roller coaster numerous times. So, uh, any uh, have you mentioned you have a brother and a sister, or either of them musically inclined like you are? Uh, yeah, they're not professional musicians, but my my sister played cello during high school, and my brother uh, played like bass guitar and bands and stuff. Right. So they always there's an artistic gene in the family, definitely. That's usually the case too. I've sort of found if not, there's usually not an outlier that runs towards music. No. I want to go into this a little bit. You mentioned that the people in the orchestra tend to audition, but do you tend to audition at this stage in your career? At this stage, no. At the beginning of your career, definitely. Auditioning is such a bizarre thing because when you're young, that's the only way to get exposure yep. to companies. As you get older, companies tend to travel around to see what other companies are doing and, and are introduced to singers that way. So for me at this point of my career, I mean, I've sung enough places and been singing long enough that if I audition, it tends to be for a very specific role. Or for instance, you know, maybe the general director or the casting director at said opera house 
saw me and wants me for something, but the music director is like, I don't know his work, like have him come in and sing for me. So, because a, a lot of the casting decisions in opera are kind of collaborative, so you have to have right. multiple le- uh, levels sign off on it. And if I'm right, uh, your your credentials here, you are considered an IMG artist. Yeah. What does that mean, by the way? Is that just a management company? Management company. Yeah. Management company. Yeah. And is this somebody that specializes in opera singers or productions or? So all over the board. So IMG has numerous uh, offices throughout the world, like New York, London, Paris, uh, Hamburg. And so they will have like a, a roster, roster mainly of classical performers that can run through opera singers, through opera directors, through conductors, through pianists, through violinists. And they will also represent some smaller ensembles, like maybe a chamber choir or a chamber orchestra. Basically what they are is... They're the go. Be- they're both the go between, between yourself as an artist and the companies, and they're kind of the gatekeepers for, for the art form because this is an old art form we're dealing with. So, a lot of companies will entrust upon good managers their judgment on what singers can sing what roles based on kind of a historical precedent or even where maybe things are shifting these days. They obviously deal with the. The, the negotiation and that type of stuff but but a lot of it is knowing where companies are what they're doing and also helping you build your career like I've been with my man, manager for 19 years I think and we both were getting into the business at the same time so I think that's why it's worked this long and this well but a lot of his job is saying okay I have this 19 year old really talented bass which is very unusual but there's not a lot of stuff he can sing at this point so how do we give him work, build up the credentials, build up that experience so that once we we hit it, he's ready for everything? And at what point is that? And what rules? Where do you go from this type of repertoire to that type of repertoire? Because the problem in this business is when you make a misstep, it can set you back three steps because it's a small world and people hear stuff. So, you know, if someone's like, oh, Robert Palmikoff singing this role at this house, and everyone's like, oh, I wonder if he can do it. And if you do it, Great. Right. Keeps going. But if it falters, everyone's like, uh, didn't well, think th- he was ready, you know? Let me ask you this. Do you read reviews about your productions? Or are you, are always. You, always? <laughs> yeah. It's just that simple? You have to? You don't have I, I know. I I mean, I have a lot of colleagues who say they never read reviews. I don't know if I believe them. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I will fully admit that I always read my reviews. You always read your reviews. And do you remember any of the good ones? Because it seems to me that most people who are reading reviews, all they remember are the bad ones. It's funny, I kind of, I guess the way I compartmentalize it is I'll say, like, for instance, here I'm doing Madame Butterfly in Paris. So down the road, I can look back and say, like, I think most of my reviews were positive or most most of my reviews were negative. So I try to look at it from a, a larger perspective than just saying, like, that one person said something amazing about me and these five people said something crap about me. Like, I just kind of, you have to, I think it's important to take it in, but try not to take it personally, which is hard because it's a personal thing, but it's... In the end, like the crazy thing with singing is what you're feeling on stage is not necessarily what people are seeing or hearing out there. Sure. Like the distance is so great, right? And that's the crazy thing with this profession, this art form, is I can think I'm doing everything perfectly and there's a conductor out there or a music staff out there saying like, no, you're not with the orchestra or you're out of tune or this or that. Or I think I'm being very convincing in my um, acting choices towards other people on stage and then a director or an assistant director can come up and be like, like it looks very ambiguous, what's going on? 
and that's why it's important to trust people and it's also important to work with good people because we all feed off of each other uh, it's very collaborative and you yes. also you have to have thick skin but at the same time you have to be willing to give everything you can to other totally. people's direction yeah right uh, has there ever been a time where you literally thought, oh my God, this is not going well, and it ended up being the best performance you've ever had? There was a famous soprano named Joan Sutherland, and her famous saying, and like she had arguably the greatest soprano career of the 20th century, and her saying was, I can count my best performances on one hand, and we're talking about one of the greatest singers of all time, right. and I think I'm kind of that. I'm less picky now, but what I do between every show is I try to find one or two things that I didn't like what I did the previous night and try to fix it for the present night. Because the problem is you can't you can't reinvent the wheel, right? So you have to take things, step, I keep saying step by step a lot, but it really is. Because if you're trying to fix five things at once, you're not going to fix any. If you try to fix one thing at once, you might be able to fix it. It still seems like you, you might be your worst critic if you can only count on one hand how many performances for the amount of time that you've been in it. Uh, in the game, you know, it's interesting too. I remember I was seeing um, in Paris the uh, you know who Hokusai is the artist. Yep. Right. Well, that uh, there was some quote at the very end, and I'm going to slander it, and it's not going to be accurate. But it really had something. He he, he made a point at a career in his life where he was in his 80s, where he finally thought he was okay. And that's I can't remember the exact quote because it was translated and yada yada. No, yada, but I got but, it. You know, somebody like that who spends their entire life changed their artistic direction and still at the age of 80 thinks. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, maybe that's just what most artists are like or most musicians. In I totally think so. I mean, five years ago, I thought like, oh, you know what? I'm really trying to lock into this. And now I'm <laughs> thinking the same thing, right? <laughs> so like, <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long game too, like you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mind you saying step by step because I think one of the things that I recognize right off the bat from doing the, the research, uh, which wasn't, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, I was a little bit intimidated by trying to find information on opera because it's something that I... I just don't know much about, right? I'm a rock and roll guy. I sure. really love going to concerts. It's just the way it's been ingrained in me. The only thing that I really know about opera is that my father was a huge fan, and we had the three tenors playing around the house nonstop, and Pavarotti was one of his favorite performers of all time. Yeah. But that was not what I grew up on. I was listening to ACDC yeah. while my father was playing that in the background. Sure. And unfortunately, he passed away at a, at, uh, you know, when I was in college, and I didn't really get that time with him to develop into something that he probably knew a ton about. Yeah. Uh, I, I digress. Uh, moving on, I, I had a question about this. What do you think are the most common misconceptions about what you do as an artist? So I would, <laughs> this is a good one. Um, from the idea of performing, I don't think people understand that it's basically a play to words. The way I try to explain it to people, it's like, you know, do you know Phantom of the Opera? Do you do, know Les Miserables? Do you know Showboat? Do you know South Pacific? Like, this is the original form of this, of that. I mean, this is a play that's set to music and to singing. We're not just standing on stage. Like, there's an entire interaction. We're creating characters. There's a scene happening around us. I always say what makes opera the greatest art form, but also the most difficult to pull off, is that it combines all aspects of art. It combines literature. It combines uh dialogue it combines singing combines orchestra playing it combines sets all these things right that's what makes it so difficult so i would say that's people's just general idea i think is just like you know fat people that's the other thing is just the size of opera singers like that's <laughs> 50 years ago sure but like right now it's very much 
more of an in vogue thing. And the other thing is, I think people are really intimidated to go to the opera. They're like, oh, I, you know, I'm not rich enough to go to the opera. I can't do this. I'm not sure that's a misconception though, because I think I think you might be onto something there. I think it's one of those things. That it is. It is an expensive ticket. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think. What do you think the the cost of a ticket uh, to see Madame Butterfly is? I'm guessing somewhere between eighty to a couple hundred euros, depending upon where you're at. Paris is an exception, which makes it great. It's tickets start at fifteen and they go to one fifty, which is actually a very tight range for opera. If you think of somewhere like New York, it's more like in the twenty five to fifty up to like a three hundred dollar range. So it is an expensive art form. But I mean, how much is it to go to Springsteen's concert? How much is it to get good seats to uh, you know a sporting match, for instance? Uh, you know, look, my wife wanted me to take our kids um, uh, in February. We went to London to go see The Lion King because the kids have to see it. You know, it's, yeah. it's a production. Yeah, uh, but it's also a really expensive production. Yeah, right? all because productions, productions are expensive to put productions on. Productions are expensive <laughs> to put on, but I think the ticket price for those. I think we walked away with four tickets at over seven hundred euros yeah. or pounds. Pounds, yeah, yeah, even pounds. Yeah, yeah, right. Because when you do something like that. You want to be as close to the stage so the kids get to see it, and you you know you're yeah. right in the middle of it. So uh, I'm not complaining by any sense of the imagination. I understand that the price point should be what it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm actually coming. No, like I, I I I take your point. I think the point I was trying to make was, it's not though expensive. It's not something just reserved for the ultra high class or right. the the ultra artistic class. Um. And it's not, it's not, that's really not an issue here in Europe because if you go to an opera, classical music concert, you see people all ages because it's just part of the culture. I'm speaking more of the North American aspect of it. So I think that's a big misconception because I find most people who go to an opera for the first time are kind of amazed by it because it's not what they expect. And a lot of people are worried about the language. Well, every opera house in the world has surtitles now, either on the back of the seats or above the stage. Oh, they do? So, yeah, so you always know what's going on. How long has that been in play for? Uh, about 30 years now. Yeah. Somebody should have told me that. I know. <laughs> I also think I think opera does a terrible self uh, a terrible job of selling itself to a wider audience. I think that is an issue institutionalized within opera companies. So what would you what would be a solution? I've always wondered and I don't know if this can work out time-wise if you kind of do what Broadway shows do and have like the preview shows. Because even for a new production of an opera and that's where most companies are putting all their eggs in a basket is so the fir first time you're doing a new conception of, of a classic piece. So new sets, new costumes, new acting. Um, mostly you're only getting about three or four kicks at the can of that on stage, kind of running it in full everything before a, a one dress rehearsal that you usually have an invited audience to, and then you open. But the problem is, like, my run here is 15 shows. That's a lot in opera, and that's... Nothing compared to Broadway shows that run eight days a week, right? Because opera singers can't do that. We need we need the rest. It's just too physically demanding. But I kind of wonder what would happen if you at least opened up the last two or three rehearsals to the general audience. What they do tend to do, which is great, is they do a lot of out outreach to schools to try to get kids into it. Um, and a lot of times for dress rehearsals, they'll bring in, you know, loads of kids right. to come and see it. The problem is, they're kids. They're kids. Like, because I, I remember <laughs> being bused to like musicals in Toronto when I was in uh, grade school, right? And it's like I can remember them. I can see them in my head. Like, they're I had a great time. But if my parents aren't going to take me, it's a one-time event, right? 
Uh, speaking of that, I, let's talk about the... I, I didn't realize the amount of how many nights you do this performance while you're in town. I, I, I don't know much about that. So when you talk about doing, you said 15 performances? Yeah. 15 performances, and you need a break in between. Exactly. Uh, how much of a break do you need, and how do you keep your voice in pristine shape? It depends on the repertoire you're doing. You always usually... I mean, here's a bit different because they're doing... Like, for instance, this week I have four shows, which is a lot, and two back-to-backs. But the main leads are double casts. So one night you have one cast, and one night you have another cast, and the more secondary roles, like I'm doing, you'll just have a single cast because you're not going to get too tired from doing s- something like that. In between shows, it's more... It's more, To me, it's just rest, right? Like, if your body's healthy, your voice will work. You're not obviously going to sing a master role back-to-back, night-to-night, because it's it is just too exhausting and the voice probably needs a day or two in between. But like as in, you know, special things, special tricks, not really. I mean, as long as you're healthy, you'll be able to sing. So the idea is if you have rest, if you're eating properly, if you're exercising properly, hopefully you don't get sick because that's the worst. The worst. Right. Has that happened to you before? Yeah, I've gone sick and had to, I've never, I'm knock on wood, had to cancel. But like I've definitely sung shows that I could not do my best because simply I wasn't healthy enough. It's pay to play, so if you're not on stage, you're not getting your check, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Since this is the Traveling Entertainer podcast, let's talk about the traveling aspect. And just looking at your resume, here's what I found. 2019-2020 season, uh, it states that you have already been with the Opera National of Paris, which you're currently at, doing Madame Butterfly. You've been at the Den Norsk in Oslo uh, in a production. You have been at the Cincinnati Opera and you have been to the Metropolitan Opera in New York, as well as also at the Calgary Philharmonic. Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, that's what's happening this year. So That's what's happening? Oh, the 2019-2020. Exactly. Okay. So, so Paris is the first of, and then the rest of those are to come. Ah, okay. So yeah. that's what you're going to be doing for the next year. Yes. Holy <laughs> Moses. And you've been, is this, is this a normal schedule for you? Is this what it is always like in your world? Definitely. Yeah. And has this been since out of college? It's been this rigorous. Pretty much. Is there any place you haven't been in the world? <laughs> Without opera. Without <laughs> or, opera. Or with or opera. With, I mean, you know, where, how far have you gone with opera as far as travel is concerned? Uh, it's, so all over North America, all over Europe. Um, I haven't been to Asia yet for opera. That might be ch- changing, um, but just because of my work. I definitely have the travel bug. So, I mean, I've been everywhere, basically, except the two poles, and those are on basically. the list. Uh, have you actually made a list? My wife and I have an official list. We did an Excel spreadsheet of every country that we've been to. Really? Uh, we had a goal of getting to 50 countries by the age of 50, and I think I'm at 46 or 47. Okay. Uh, and we're not too worried about it because I'm 46 years old and I got a couple of years to bang out a couple more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's really not that, you know, when you, the funny thing is when you set a goal like this, we maybe set it 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's fun to kind of go, oh, we're almost getting there. We're almost getting yeah, there. Yeah. But now that we're close to 50, it doesn't seem like we've seen that much. No. Right. And that's the thing. Have you ever put a list together? And do you think you're well over 50 countries? I haven't put a list together. If, if I went through it in my mind, I'd probably be not far off from that point. The thing I really, and this is just pure laziness on my part. I have like a bar, a man cave bar room at my house back home and on one wall I have an enormous uh, National Geographic map of the world like enormous right it takes up the entire wall it's about the size of the wall in this room awesome and 
I all I need to do is just like go through my head and take pins and just put it everywhere I, I've been. You should do that. I definitely need to but do that. But when you only have a couple of days off and you're <laughs> yeah, probably like, exactly. I need to go see some friends. <laughs> and pay some bills. <laughs> well, so then let's go back. I didn't realize that was your 2019, 2020, but man, that is, that's pretty insane because let me ask you this. At what particular point along the way, is it like in June you start realizing, oh, I need more work or does it just start coming? Like you've got an empty slot and your manager is like, all right, 2021's coming up. You know, we're going to try and get you in this role, this role, and this role. Is how long do you know? I mean, look, you, this is this is a year of your life. You've yeah. already got that planned. Yeah. Is it always a, a year look forward? I mean, I know stuff as far as four or five years out at a time. Are you kidding me? Because the thing with opera requires so many logistics that companies have to plan so far out in advance. Now, a place like Paris or the Met is going to be on a different. Uh, planning schedule than let's say Kansas City or Tulsa, right? So, you know, Kansas City or Tulsa might be on a two-year schedule, but like the big opera companies are on a four or five-year plan because they just, I mean, these, these places are factories, man. Like the, right. the, the Met employs 4,000 people full-time. Like I don't know what Paris is. It might even be b- bigger than that. Like there's so much yeah, inner machinery. An it's an industry. Yeah, I get it. I get it. No, that makes sense. But I, I, I had no idea that a four or five year forward look period in my mind a year maybe two but clearly i'm wrong and that's a really interesting fact to know no and it also depends on the like the big stars are probably solidly booked out three or four years i'm usually solidly booked out a year and a half to two years with stuff further out and then yeah as you just said like and then your manager is just trying to you know put blocks into where the holes are right right well let's talk about your 2018 2019 schedule then because this is also to me, you know, just completely fascinating. Uh, let's see, you were in the Santa Fe Opera, the Vancouver Opera. Uh, you were in Germany at the Oper Frankfurt, uh, the Metropolitan Opera again. It seems to be someplace you're always playing at. Uh, the Victoria Symphony and the New Mexico Philharmonic. Yeah. Did I miss anything? If Would, you did, I wouldn't know. Wouldn't <laughs> it's, know. It's, once the gig's gone, it's kind of gone, right? Is there ever a point, though, that you would like to take some time off? Yeah, definitely. And I'm I'm in a pretty crazy stretch now of like it's coming up on I think almost 18 straight months of being on contract or if not on contract the most I was having was like a week or two off. And the thing is what people the other misconception people don't understand is you know it's not like a film set where you're handed a script, you accept to do it and then you get on you get on set and you're doing a scene and you can take 100 takes and you can take six or eight months to make a movie. These operas are can be anywhere from two and a half to six hours long. And, you know, we have the typical rehearsal periods about three weeks. That's three weeks from day one meeting everyone, getting right. your concept down to performing for the live audience. So, like, when we show up, we have to know our stuff cold musically, right? Know our words cold. We have to be able to interact with each other on the spot. When you're in the middle of the gig, I mean, obviously you're concentrating on that gig, but you're worried about what's happening next. Um, And especially if you haven't done a piece before. I mean, I'm lucky right now because I've done this before. Um, My next thing that I'm doing in Oslo, I've done before. But then after that, I start getting into a lot of repertoire that I've never done. So I've planned in my head, because I have to learn this stuff myself. I have to have the self-discipline to plan that out and figure out. No one's looking over my shoulder. Companies aren't calling me saying, how's your preparation going? Right. They just expect no you to be ready. Coach calling you saying, maybe you worked on this part. Yeah. I mean, you work with 
coaches and you work with people, but it's, it's all on your um, impetus to get it done. So do you have practice spaces to do this? I mean, you must have a loud voice, and you, I'm guessing you're not in your apartment in Paris right now, you know, singing your next part. No. I mean, at home, I obviously have a studio set up, piano and stuff that I can work on. And when you're on the road, you do, like, for instance, I was down at, in my dressing room today at the opera just working on music myself. You know, you have most most companies, you'll have a practice studio or your even your dressing rooms, which will have a piano in it, and you can just now, are crash you, away. Are you completely proficient on the piano? I wouldn't call it completely, and I wouldn't call it proficient, but I can... But you can play the piano? I can play the piano. <laughs> All right. Uh, and, and I'm guessing when you get handed this music, it's got piano music associated with the lyrics that you have to... to yeah, so basically what they do is they'll take... Because if you look at a conductor score, the full score, they're like two feet long, and that has every single instrument on it. Whereas what we use is what's called a piano vocal score. So it's our part, the vocal parts, and then the orchestra is just transcribed onto a piano, piano okay. part. And this is this is all digital now? Um, I, I, I would say right now probably 20% of the singers use like a iPad or something like that. I, right. st I still use hard scores. I mean, that's how I was raised and I just, I need, to, I need to use a pencil. I need to erase stuff like that. I need physical stuff, yeah, right? I am the same way with reading. I, I never, yeah, read exactly. I can't, I cannot read off a reader. I have to have I a book. I can't do it. I yeah. just, I, I will not do it. It's yeah. just that simple. Here's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about with your touring schedule and your traveling schedule. Are you able to keep any relationship or are you only married to opera? No. No, but it's just, it's hard. Yeah, I'm guessing. I mean, you, you, have to have, you have to have someone who's either either in the business, appreciates the business, or um, they themselves have a kind of flexible, unusual schedule. Like, I think it's, it's very hard for, I think it'd be hard to date, like, a, a teacher or, a, you know, a professional that is always at home and always kind of works a nine to five. I also think it's, I mean, people, I do have colleagues who have families and kids and stuff. Like I just, I've never seen how that is feasible, feasible for me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Probably going to be doing, I don't, I, I don't see you quitting opera. No, no. Uh, and if you did, let me ask you, this is actually kind of off subject, but if you did have to quit opera, is there another passion that you would pursue? Ten bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's actually a really good answer. I think I say that a lot, too. And I don't know what I want to do. I look back at the, the stage of my life where I was in college and working nights at a restaurant. And, the, you know, those days I look very fondly on. And I always, but I never got to be the bartender. Yeah. I was never a bartender. Right. I worked in a restaurant. I served. I worked at the bar, but I never got to bartend. Really? Never got a bartend, and I think I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to try that out at some yeah, point yeah. in my life. I don't think it'd be a good idea. No, but I it mean, would be a fun know, thing to try. Yeah, just so I can tell people, yeah, I bartended, of course I have. Let's talk a little bit about all the venues that you've been to. Uh, out of all the venues, how does first of all, let's start with Paris. How does this venue compare to the rest of the world? So Paris is the second largest opera house and opera company next to the Met. So in the sense of uh, just budget, like what it costs, to produce a season, uh, Paris is only exceeded by the Met in New York, and also for for the actual size of venue. So, the Met's uh, just over four thousand seats, and Paris is, I believe, just over three thousand. The Bastille, uh, Paris also has the Garnier that they they do performances at. So, I mean, Paris is obviously one of the the heads on the Mount Rushmore of opera, and um, they're this season they're actually 
celebrating the 350th anniversary of the company. So, I mean, historically, it's... I think, you know, just recently at the um, the face, the facade yeah. outside uh, the Basti Opera, they added these, you know, crazy lights that look... Yeah, like on the top. Yeah, I noticed that. Like a, like a crown, Yeah, if I will. And is that the reason why? Is I have no idea. But it's because uh, I was performing here two years ago, and that was not there. Oh, so you have performed here before? Yeah. Oh, I thought you'd mentioned this is your first time. No, no, I was here two years ago in 2017 for a production of Rigoletto. Uh, and when you're looking into the future, is there ever a time where you're proposed or where you are offered uh, roles in different cities, and maybe you're like, "Well, I'd really like to go to this city over the other." Do you consider that into it, or is it more the production? Um, you know, what's what your role is in, in the play? Uh, but have you ever made a decision just based upon location? I'm sure I have. I'm. Tr- trying to remember it but i mean that's definitely one of the criteria like the first one is kind of which makes most sense in the arc of arc of the career and if those are both equal then it will probably go to you know where what role is it which one am i more interested in and then kind of third one is where it is because for me i'm still in kind of the exploration part where you know if an offer for two places is basically equal i can't go wrong on either side i'd probably take the place that i haven't been to yet just to experience something new when you deal with your traveling, your touring schedule, do you have to deal with your travel on your own or does your manager handle where you're staying, where you're flying from? How much of this are you involved with in the travel side of the planning? I do it all myself because I actually like it. I find it therapeutic. I think you might, there might be something wrong with you. Yeah, no. <laughs> right? um, yeah. Management companies have downsized since. I first started singing, like when I first started singing, you'd almost have someone in the office that dealt, like literally just dealt with artists, travel schedules and finding accommodation right. and stuff. Yeah, like a tour manager. Tour, exactly. Right. And that job's sort of been, because just the age of the internet coming now and like people can do them, this stuff themselves or pay someone at a different firm to do it for them. So basically what I do is I just find out when I need to be at a place and then when I need to be back and I'll just book my flights and submit it for reimbursement because I'm a big mileage collector and it's like I have to get my miles, I have to get my status. And then... So that, that, this is, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but with the amount of time that you've been traveling around the world, you travel more than the average bear. Yeah. Do you have a bazillion, gazillion miles or you just, you, you get to a point where you're like, ah, I can fly first class to go to this place and just spend them. I mostly use my miles for like my family or friends just because, because I'm such a mileage whore. I... If you're flying on miles, you can't accumulate miles. So I'm always flying right. on paid tickets so I can maintain my status. But I'm always top status getting my upgrades and stuff, which is great for um, the distances I have to go. Right. But, the, you know, the other thing is... Are you, let me ask you this. Because I'm always sitting in the back of the plane. Yeah. That's where I sit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm not in the front of the plane. Right. I'm not making a you know a determination of what my class is. But I think you, you, can, you can tell what I'm saying. And I fly back to Seattle quite regularly. I mean, I, I'm... Not only are my wife and I and the kids on the run nonstop, but I'm back in Seattle once every two months. Yeah, right? and S- then, six uh, times a year you're going. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's 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 quite a bit. Um, but uh, are you the type of person that has enough miles that is always sitting in the front? I would say, like, I never pay to sit in the front, but I probably sit in the front seventy percent of the time. Oh, you bastard! Yeah, Let and I mean a lot of, especially now because I'm at the highest the highest member level, like a lot of times I'll be walking onto a plane thinking I'm sitting in the back and they just hand me a new boarding card. Oh, right on. Because from what I can understand about the plane industry is they always, they oversell the back because they know they're going to have seats up front and then they, the 
people that they'll always bump up first are, you know, they're million milers, they're hundred K people. Right. Right. So as long as I maintain that, I get a lot of freebies because of that. So it's right. great. But it's funny. Like I, in the last two months, I think I've done six flights over the ocean and the first five were in the first five. I either, uh, requested upgrades with my credits or I got bumped up. And then the sixth one, I was looking at my uh, credit amount and it's like, I know I have to make two more flights. Do I save these and see if I get bumped up? So I decide to save it because I have to make a flight later on and I think it'd be more useful then to save it for those. And so I'm like, I'm walking up and like, you're like, I really hope I get my upgrade. I really hope. And then you, <laughs> and then you don't get your upgrade and you sit in the back and you, you kind of feel like this sucks. And then, you know what? It's really not that bad. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it would be honest. I can sleep on planes pretty well. And, yeah, me too. You know, as long as I'm just not sandwiched in between two people, that's what I hate the most. Yeah. But if I'm on an aisle, I'm pretty much just fine. Yeah. And the more you fly, I mean, when you're doing that distance as much as you're doing it, like you, you're just, you, you, you get used to it, you know? Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, it's not a big deal to me. I, I mean, I can do a 20, 24-hour flight, and I just yeah. don't even care. Yeah. I've got a book. I've got movies. I know how to get around. It's nothing. Totally. People who complain about the length of a flight really need to go out and see the world a little bit more. Yes, as they need, they need to fly more. They need to fly more. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, one of the last questions I want to ask you is, what advice would you give for anyone that is back at your stage when you were at the Curtis Institute? Institute? Yeah. Yep. What advice would you give to if you had to go back in time and speak to yourself, yeah, what would you be telling yourself as far as here's good advice that you should have had then as opposed to learning the hard way? Um, really just concentrate all your energy on your preparation, on, on being a professional, on being true to the music, on being prepared better than anyone else in the, the room, and understanding that even if you're the biggest star on stage that night you're such a tiny piece of the cog like when you think of what has to go in for that show to happen for one show to happen that night how many people are responsible for going on sure the spotlight's on you but you're not there without any of that infrastructure around you that's the cool thing i find going to these the world-class opera houses the met the paris like you walk in the door and no one looks at you like whether you're the opera singer or the violinist or the carpenter or the props guy or the person that works in the cafeteria. It's like, you're good enough at what you do. That's why we give you this card that gets you into the building. And that's it. That's it. I think it's damn good advice. And also what I'd like to sort of end it on is, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity to sit down and speak with me. It's been really fascinating for me. What I realized is, the amount of work that goes into this and the amount of dedication to your career yeah. is fascinating. I, I didn't really know much about this, but I can see in the way you speak about it, your passion is very clear. Yeah. I can tell that you respect the process. I can tell that you are a very hard worker. Uh, and I think what I've gotten out of this is you are committed to this more than most people would probably know. If you just met someone and said, I'm a musician, and oh yeah, I'm in opera, they're missing 99% of the iceberg underneath the water of what yeah, it's man. taken for you to get where you are. Totally. So congratulations on all your success. I, I, I did notice, I mean, you've got a list of awards. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. Uh, and I think awards are very nice. I think everyone likes to be rewarded with some form of recognition. Is there any of these awards that you have that are the most meaningful to you? No. 
None. All right. Well. <laughs> I mean, is, I, I was happy to get them. Yeah. Is there any? Is there any? You know, if in in your career, is there one that everyone looks at? Like, is there a lifetime achievement award for people in opera? Is there something that people have been given that's like, oh, they received this this year? Like, I mean, there's nothing really formally. The big thing at a, at a place. I mean, I can speak for the Met because I know the history there, and I'm sure other companies do it, but. What the Met does a lot for, like, and we're talking about the great singers of the world, like the Placido Domingos, the Sam Raimi's, the Pavarotti's, is once they get to a certain achievement or if it's their last performance, like, they'll bring them out on the stage and, like, like literally just before their last performance and just, like, hand them some token, whether it's a watch, whether it's this, and just thank you for your years of service. But there's literally, like, probably... And then they put them down like a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, they say, (laughs) now get ready for the show, right? Yeah, yeah. But... Um, you know that that something like that happens so rarely, and I think those are in the moments. So I think it's like the awards I've gotten in, in my career were early in my career, and they're very important stepping stones into where I got. But I mean, they were just they're part of the journey. I mean, in the end of the day, I think you just want recognition for what you do, and I think the most important recognition one can get is from yourself. I mean, because you know you know when you've achieved what you want wanted to, and you know when you've put in the most work. And if you don't think you've gotten there yet, then, you know, hike up the boots and do more. Just do the work. Yeah. Just do the work. Yeah. Thank you very much for being here. I look forward to seeing it. Hopefully we can make, I really want to go see no, this. No, we'll make it and, happen. But this has been great, and thank you so much. Cool, dude. And that's the end of the first part of this podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Robert Pomikoff, for his time, and I hope you learned something new about the world of opera. You can catch Opera Bob in the 2020 year. His next performance is at the Den Norsk Opera as Gremin in Christoph Loy's production of Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin. Then he's offered to the Cincinnati Opera as Vodkin in Ruzalka. He returns to New York at the Metropolitan Opera to cover the roles of Fiesco in Simone Bocanegra and Tamur in Toronto. Concert engagements include Beethoven's Misa Solemis with the Calgary Philharmonic under the baton of music director Rune Bergman. And man, is that a lot of moving around. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at info at travelingentertainer.com. Yes, that has two L's in traveling. And if you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Alexa, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and pretty much everywhere podcasts are hosted. Or you can stream it off the website at www.travelingentertainer.com. Part two of the interview with Mr. Pomakov is available next week, so make sure to check back soon. In the meantime, get out there and see the world, and while you are seeing it, make sure you support live music, or in this case, support the opera. Taking us out is Black Hawk Soliloquy, sang by the booming bass voice that is Robert Pomakov. Take care, everyone. Strong.